when I was in the bedroom grabbing the gun from the closet, I heard a crash. And my first thought was, did he come in through the garage? Did I lock the garage? So now with the gun still on the phone with 911, I ran out into the hallway and he was at the end of the hallway running towards me. So I fired. Listen up, gang. If you've not heard of Big Tech's ordinance on the internet, you've got to check it out. Ike and his team are wildly popular in the shooting and self-defense community because they are committed to providing the greatest selection of top-shelf gear at a fair price, supported by knowledgeable staff and undisputedly the best customer service in the industry. Please thank them for their support of this active self-protection podcast by considering them for any of your gear needs and let them prove to you why they have an almost fanatical fan base of their own. Please visit BigTextOrdinance.com, BigTextOrdinance.com, and let them know the Ask Podcast sent you. All right, gang, it's that time again. It's me, your favorite former Fed, Mike Williver, host of the Active Self-Protection Podcast. With us today, Val Evans. She is married to a police officer, and they have one child, and she is in sales. And Val, what part of the country do you live in? I live in the southeastern part. Okay, very good. Well, welcome. Thanks so much for being on. Yeah, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Uh, as I tell people who come on the show, the, the point of this show is for people to hear the s- real stories of real people who've been in critical incidents and not the not the Reader's Digest version and not the comic book version where, you know, everyone is super stoked after they, you know, shoot the bad guy or prevail in a, in a, a critical incident. I know this can't be super easy to talk about, but I appreciate you being willing to come on and talk to our audience. You're in sales. Have you always done that kind of general kind of work? Uh, no, actually, um, I just kind of landed here as a, my friend got me the job a few years back and uh, I ended up, you know, excelling where I was. So I just stayed here, but uh, I was previously a 911 dispatcher as well as a medic. Okay. So 911 dispatcher tells me that you're level-headed and keep calm under pressure. So that's, that's definitely a plus. Uh, that's right. a, t- that's a tough job. Um, I, I could yeah. not do that job. I was a police officer. I could not have been a dispatcher because <laughs> just between, random people calling you because some someone's dog pooped in their yard and they want the police over there right away to a uh, critical incident where someone's screaming and yelling and, and someone's bleeding out having to deal with that over the phone uh, is takes a lot of uh, a lot of patience uh, and a lot of skill so did you grow up in a household with uh, firearms I did not um, well let me rephrase that I did but I did not know anything. I was not allowed to know anything. I was just told don't touch. And that was it. So it never really affected me. You know, my dad didn't take me shooting, you know, when I was little or anything like that. Um, It was basically, this is a gun, don't touch it. And now in adulthood, are you a fan of that, uh, that manner of keeping kids away from guns? Is that your preferred uh, method or, or no? Absolutely not. Yeah, me neither. It is not how we did things. <laughs> when I was a kid, um, we had, I think we had one shotgun in our house and guns weren't a big deal. But my grandfather, uh, my stepmother's father, uh, had a ton of firearms. He kept him in a safe in a closet. And every time I came over, he would say, hey, pick a gun. You know, I was five years old. And I'd go that one and he would pull it out and he would wipe it down, show me how to make it safe, let me touch it, let me play with it, let me pull the trigger and work the action, all that sort of thing. And I, that's how we raised our kids because I feel like you get that. If you just say don't touch, all the kid hears is, ooh, something cool. Uh, <laughs> let me go investigate. But if you take the mystery out of it, I feel like that's uh, that's a better better method. So that's so you and I definitely did that the same way. You're married to a police officer. Have you been a, an avid shooter in the past before this incident happened? Do you go to the range a lot or or no? Um, well, we met in 2007 and we started dating and he said, I'm, you know, I'm a police officer. There's guns in the house. So you're going to know how to use them. And 
he started training me and he took me to the range and, you know, we'd go on dates to the range and um, went through a concealed carry class, um, all that stuff. And he would train me. He would show me how to shoot one handed, show me how to shoot with my non-dominant hand, um, just all kinds of things like that. Probably half our staff at Active Self-Protection are female. And they would they would probably say, I'd rather you don't have your husband or slash boyfriend train you in firearms. It's a, it's a bit of a debate, but you were happy with your training and then how he showed you how to do things. Absolutely, yeah. So what was the first gun you ever fired at the range? It was probably his H&K 45. Because um, he was allowed to take that and shoot it. And so it was probably that. Um, I don't. I don't remember actually the first gun that I shot, but if I had to guess, it would be that one. Do you remember it being pretty significant recoil when you fired your first gun? <laughs> yeah, pretty significant indeed. <laughs> okay, pro- probably a forty-five uh, HK. <laughs> yeah. Excellent choice. We uh, John Korea, our owner and founder, is a brand ambassador for HK, so we are big fans of HK over here at ASP. Uh, by the way, so <laughs> let's talk about the the incident that happened. Um, this happened in your home. And I guess we'd be like, well, where was her police officer husband when all this was going on? Uh, he was at work, unfortunately. So it right. was just you and your child. Now, how old was the uh, was your child at the time? She was two and a half. Okay. So just in your own words, just walk us through what happened. Um, so I was just uh, sitting on the couch, you know, winding down, getting ready for bed. I was about 1030 at night and I heard the, somebody knock on the door and not just knock, but he was like pounding on it. And I thought to myself, what is my neighbor doing? Because he would never like, you know, come up to the house like that. Like he would, for one, probably call. Um, So I went to the peephole, looked out to see if I knew who it was. I had no idea who he was, but something told me that he's coming in. So, um, you know, throughout the course of the training and the firearm training, we also had like a plan in place because we did back up to a not so favorable area. Hmm. Um, so we had a little training plan that we had put into place, which was to call 911, go get the gun and, you know, hide until, you know, the cops got there. So I immediately made sure the door was locked at the top. And then I called 911 and I ran back to the bedroom to get the gun. And when I was in the bedroom grabbing the gun from the closet, um, I heard a crash. And my first thought was, did he come in through the garage? Did I lock the garage to the kitchen door? And that was where my main focus was. So now with the gun still on the phone with 911, I ran out into the hallway with the intention to go check the kitchen to garage door. And he was at the end of the hallway running towards me. So I fired. So he's at the end of your hall. About how far away is that from where you were standing? Uh, seven feet from where I came out initially. Okay. And um, where, where is your child at this point? She so the way that our our house was laid out was the hallway and then um, like a T on one side was her room and on the other side was our room and we always kept the door shut for her so you know the light from the the hall and stuff so her door was shut and I made sure of that and then I looked down the hallway and that's where he was at the end of it. Is he saying anything? I, I assume you don't know this person from Adam. This is a complete stranger. Yeah, complete stranger had no idea who he was and he just started running towards me. At this moment, I mean, this is all happening pretty quickly. What's going through your head? Because I know it isn't nothing. The, the times like this, time seems to slow down a little bit. Oh, were you thinking about your daughter? Were you thinking about, are the police here yet? What was going through your mind? I think when I first saw him, obviously was, why is he in my house? 
um, the next thought was, I can't let him come down this hallway. And, uh, and he was already moving down the hallway at that point. At a pretty good rate. Yeah, he was running. At that moment, you you fire at him once. What happens then? Right. He was still coming towards me. So I fired a second uh, shot off and that one took him down. And uh, I just, I told him not to move and I held him there. I told dispatch what happened. I heard, um, I heard my daughter cry from her room and I, you know, moved the phone down from my face and I said, mommy's okay. And then I went right back to being on the phone with dispatch and my husband, I don't remember, I don't really remember this, but my husband told me that the dispatchers, you know, it got around. Basically, my story went out to the academy and everything. They were playing my calls in the um, police academy. But um, I asked for his name, his date of birth, his social security number. Like, I just went into dispatch mode. Wow. and was like going through the questions like that. I knew if I was a dispatcher and I had somebody, you know, in front of me, you know, on the, on the, front of, on the other line, you know, what questions am I asking? And that's just where I went through. And I just started going through those questions. Because that's where my training was. That is the most unusual thing I <laughs> thing I think I've heard so far doing this show. That's that's funny. So was <laughs> yeah, he answering? I, I was he answering you? He was. <laughs> he gave me his name. He gave me his name. He gave me the right date of birth. He gave me the right social. Like he gave me all the right information, and I was just I was relaying it <laughs> to dispatch. At this moment, is he? Do you know where he shot? And is he bleeding profusely, or or is he not? Is he bleeding internally? I mean, could you tell? Um, I couldn't tell if he was bleeding or not, but he did have his hand down by his left side, um, which I found out later. The bullet actually went through the left hand into the left lower abdomen, and then another one went into his groin. It's an audio-only podcast, so people can't see the face I'm I'm making right now, (laughs) but it's not a good one. Okay. Uh, Let's skip um, forward a little bit. Does, Does this gentleman live through this? Does he make it? He did. Um, he spent, I think, about 19 days in the hospital um, with uh, multiple surgeries. And later in court, we found out that uh, he has got a bullet still lodged at the base of his spine um, that was too risky to remove. So he'll always have that limp and that bullet there. And that reminder to don't don't do burglaries. Yeah, don't do crime. <laughs> yeah, crime, crime is bad, kids. So going back to the incident at the time, about how long did it take for anyone to show up at your house? And how did that go exactly? Did they have you put the gun away, that sort of thing? Walk us through that. Well, the dispatcher was doing as dispatchers are taught to do and telling me to put the gun down. And I said, I'm absolutely not putting nope. the gun down <laughs> until the police arrive, at which point I will place it on the counter and walk out where they can see everything that's going on. And she was like, oh, or he was like, okay. Um, and it felt like it was a very strange feeling. It was, um, almost like it happened, you know, just instantly, immediately, like super quickly. And then another part of it seems like it just dragged on for hours that I waited. Um, in reality, it was less than 10 minutes because they were across the way. Um, you know, in the bad part, they were over there doing stuff. So they heard what was going on and they came, they left that scene and came over to this one, which was, you know, across the street. So, you know, 10 minutes in a moment like that can feel like 10 years. It's really, it's really a long time. Every second, uh, it seems to, dr- to drag out. Yeah. So they, they arrive. I assume you're still talking to dispatcher. They're telling you the officers are outside. Yes. Um, the dispatcher told me that the officers were there. 
And, um, and I said, okay, I said, I will wait until I can see them because if I move away from him, he could run to the back. You know, my daughter was there. That was my thought process. And, mm-hmm. um, so the dispatcher said, okay. So the officer approached and I, you know, I said, you know, hi, I'm, you know, I'm me, this is what's going on. And I put the gun on the counter and I walk out with my hands up. Uh, and I told, I was telling dispatch the entire time what I was doing just so, you know, there was, it was clear and I was moving slowly because <laughs> I didn't want, you know, I didn't want to, I don't want to make cops jumpy because I knew coming into a situation like that is, you know, so I went out on the porch and the one officer went in and um, secured him. Uh, the second officer that showed up was uh, one of the sergeants or sergeants or lieutenants. And I told, I asked him, can you please go check on my daughter? She's in the back room. You know, she, I heard her crying. Like I don't, she was in her room locked, not locked in, but you know, the door was shut. Um, can you please go check on her? And uh, he went back there and he stayed with her. I said, just tell her you're one of daddy's friends. And that's what he did. And Good he thinking. was singing to her and he was, um, you know, he kept her occupied and out of the way until everybody got the guy out of the house. And at that point, then um, they radioed the one who had gone back and told him to come out. So he came out, you know, with my daughter and, um, and then I was able to stay with her until uh, my husband got there. I had called him I st- when I stepped out onto the porch um, and I asked the one officer to go back. You know, obviously more and more are coming now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so another one comes up on the porch and, um, and I was like, I started dialing on my phone. He's like, what are you doing? I was like, I'm calling my husband. You know, he's a police officer at work. And he was like, do you think that's a good idea right at this moment? And I was like, nope. And I handed him the phone. (laughs) I didn't even hang up. I just handed him the phone. And he was like, "Um." (laughs) my husband's like, hey, honey. (laughs) Sir, this is, you know, such and such with this police department. Um, Everything's okay. (laughs) But (laughs) I need you to get home as soon as you can. (laughs) and so he, he told him, I guess he told him what was going on. I don't, everything else beyond that is a bit of a blur is a, you know. Sure. Is you, does your husband work for the same agency or a different agency? Uh, it was a neighboring jurisdiction, but he was still probably at a normal speed, 20 to 30 minutes away at the time of night it was. So five to 10 um, to get there, to get know. home. You, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That <laughs> as the crow flies kind of thing. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, he made it there fairly quickly. <laughs> yeah, and, I um, bet. Yeah, and I I was thankful that he was able to be there because it was it was a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can I can imagine. So moving forward with their investigation, they they questioned you. Did you answer questions right then and there, or did you wait and talk to an attorney, or how did how did you how did you play it out exactly? Uh, no, I I gave them my statement. What happened there? Um, right in the in the car and um you know they did ask me a bunch of questions and things like that um but it was uh found the way that he actually came in the house was not through the front door um though he broke that in two places but that crash that i had heard was actually him coming through the window in the dining room area um he took out the whole frame so there was no question you know as to what happened as far as you know any of that went um and it was I mean, I was never, you know, questioned like in a manner of like it wasn't self-defense kind of a thing. Sure. So you weren't Mirandized, right? No. Okay. 
Yeah, that's that's what that's when you just start being a little bit concerned. I mean, after they read your Miranda rights, and you're like, wait, yeah. wait a minute. Yeah, yeah, no. <laughs> well, that's good to hear. Did no, they they're... did they take your firearm as evidence? They did. Did you get it back? They took that. I did. Okay. So what um, happens to this guy in in court? You guys go to court. Did he give any explanation as to what what he was doing or why? And did he have any previous criminal history? Uh, he did have previous criminal history, but it was all under juvenile. If I'm remembering correctly, he was 25 at the time of the incident. Um, but everything that had been on his record was from juvenile. So it you know, didn't count, so to speak. And he did not give a reason to why he was there. He just, I, I, I don't know what, if he, you know, what he was saying on his end, because I was trying to ignore him because it was, it was pretty difficult um, to be in there. Um, and it wasn't even that, you know, I, I went to, I went to therapy afterwards, obviously. Um, my therapist, she was hung up on the fact that I had shot someone. Hmm. And I was like, no, I, I made peace with that, you know, a long time ago. And I have no problem with, you know, my actions and with what I did. Like, I'm comfortable in that. What I'm not okay with is the fact that my home was, you know, my safe place and mm. it is no longer safe. At least it didn't feel safe because, you know, was somebody going to come in again? Completely understandable. We've had more than one person, at least two people who had someone uh, enter their home and assault them in one way or another. And they would talk about, you know, the, the next time they came home and, you know, saw still the uh, the damage from the where the person broke in and just being in the home and replaying that thing in your mind over and over again. Was that your experience? Yes. Um, I got to the point where I didn't even want to come out of the bedroom because I was afraid of what was out there. Um, and my husband was able to take off a few days after um, and just, you know, help me maybe decompress a little, at least what I could. Um, we talked about it because, you know, we'd both been in critical incident debriefings, you know, before. Mm -hmm. um, so we figured it'd be best to go over it again. So, you know, we went over everything that had happened and basically debriefed me and uh, went through that process and it still didn't help. But I was so anxious. I told him we have to move. We have to move right now. I can't stay in the city anymore. And that's the city that we were both born and raised in. And um, I said, I just can't, I just can't stay in the city anymore. I can't do it. Um, so about two weeks later, which was a really short time to find a rental, if you think about it. Um, so it was just about two weeks later that we moved up to the city, the county that he actually works in. So he moved up there and I felt a lot better with him being, you know, there, but I was still, it was a new place now, new kind of fear, but at least I wasn't constantly looking at the same, you know, setting and layout. So that did make a difference. I was, I was going to ask you that exact question. Yeah. So you, moving to the new place didn't eliminate any fear of being home alone or home alone with your child, but it, but so you're saying basically that just not being in the place where it happened made it a positive difference. Yeah. Um, you know, I still had that anxiety about somebody coming in. But um, I did find that we, we still had the same TV stand. Um, and he was actually in front of the TV stand. And he did end up bleeding a little bit. I feel like for the injuries that he had, it was not a lot at all. It was literally just, you know, several large drops on the carpet. And then there was one on, on my daughter's shoe. I remember that. 
And that was kind of, I was like holding it together. I was like, okay. And then I saw her shoe and I saw that the shoe had blood on it. And that's, that's what really when it went downhill. I had um, an immediate visceral reaction when you said there was, there was blood on your daughter's shoe. I do not like yeah. that at all. I, yeah. And I remember it. I, I remember it distinctly. Um, but so seeing the TV stand still, um, I did end up having visual and auditory hallucinations from it. Um, and I remember so clearly I was sitting on the couch and I could see the guy who had broken in laying on the floor in front of the stand, like he had been. And, but it was, it was almost like, you know, in movies when they have ghosts and you can kind of see through it, it was like that. And so like half of my brain was like, it's okay. It's a hallucination. It's not real. And the other half of my brain was like, you are literally going to die because you don't have, you know, you don't have your gun with you. You are going to die. And, um, I, that was a rough night. (laughs) Um, finally ended up getting on the right combination of medications. And now, you know, my, I no longer have issues with the, well, I'll say no longer have issues, but I am not affected on a daily basis by my PTSD. Talk to us again about your therapist. You said, and I find this interesting, you said that she was more hung up on the fact that you had shot someone. And when you say that, do you mean she was like, you don't beat yourself up, it's okay, you did what you had to do? Or what was what was it she was getting at exactly with that? Yeah, I think it was more of that. Like she thought that I was concerned about that aspect, but that's not what was bothering me. But she wanted to talk about that. Hmm. But I was like, that's literally I'm fine with it. Like he was where he wasn't supposed to be. I have no, (laughs) I have no remorse about this situation happening. Like that's, that's not bothering me. (laughs) Um, But she would kept, she kept circling back to it. So anyways, I obviously did not click well with her. (laughs) So I, I found eventually found this, you know, one that I actually was able to talk to and, you know, get feedback that was helpful instead of, you know, them wanting to talk about whatever, but you know, actually addressing what was going on. Yeah, I would, I would imagine most people, to include therapists, have probably have never met anyone who shot someone before. So there's probably, a, I hate to say it, there's probably an element of novelty to it for them. Like, they want to hear more about that. And yeah. I, I'm, I'm sorry that happened to you that way. That's that's <laughs> not really cool. Let's discuss just for a second the uh, the legal part. This guy goes to court. Does he plead guilty, not guilty? How does the legal process play itself out? I'm not a hundred percent sure. I want to say he did the not guilty thing so that they had more room to find something that they were looking for, I guess. Um, it was continued several times, even though he was in jail. Um, it seemed like something was always coming up and they were having to like keep continuing it. So just dragging it out, the anxiety of going back to the court, you know, to see him again, to, you know, cause he was there face to face. So all of that was, uh, and then I found out that it had been continued yet again because he had actually gotten out of jail, I guess on bail or whatever else. And um, he skipped, he skipped court. Great. So we were continued and I was like, okay. So then you, you know, you have that continuing buildup of that anxiety there on, on my end. Um, what I ended up doing was writing. Um, I, I know there's a, a fancy word for it. Maybe you know what it is, but the victim, um, 
the little letter that you can write that basically says what ha- why why you are so affected by what happened. Yeah, it's just uh oh, yeah, there is a term for it. It's it's a yeah. vict- victim <laughs> statement, uh, victim impact statement maybe. Yes, okay. yes, that's what it is. Yeah. Victim impact statement. Um, so I ended up writing one of those, and uh, my attorney wanted me to read it, um, but I I just could not bring myself to do that. So it was about um, it was a full page typed, you know, single space. <laughs> it was it was a long statement, um, but the judge read it uh, to himself, but he did read it, um, and he ended up um, finding him guilty when he, you know, it finally got gone through and, uh, they sentenced him, I forgot to maybe six years, I think. Um, but he ended up going to court then, then he got time served and he got out. He was supposed to come one more time for something related to this specifically. His attorney found there was like some super old nonsense sentence in there, um, that pretty much said, because I did not let him explain why he was in, in my house. There was nothing he could be charged for. My attorney was like, what that means is that because you did not allow him to you know, physically assault you or try to take your TV, because you didn't allow those things to happen, we don't know why he was truly there. And because we don't know why he was truly there, there's no case here. All we know is he was on drugs think he thought he was somewhere else i was going to ask about the tox report did you got were you guys privy to the toxicology and what did it show do you know uh i don't know what it showed i just know that he was on drugs some kind of drugs yeah that's all the detective told me Hmm. i think one of the things that's most important about this show and the stories that we're telling is that people need to know and be prepared for what happens after an incident like this because the after is is huge it's enormous and it's not rarely is it uh, as I like to say, you blow the smoke off your still smoking barrel, you know, and you'll have a martini and high five your spouse. <laughs> and wasn't that cool? You know, I blew the bad guy away, whatever. It's traumatic and it's awful and it's unpleasant. Um, now that you've gotten away from the other house, how, how do you, what's your anxiety level like now? Is it, has it improved? Are you, do you feel like you've put this behind you? Uh, yes and no. Um, the old house was a townhouse, so we were attached to other people and, I think it was kind of comforting at the time because they were so close. Um, we then moved into a standalone ranch that was pretty small. And the door had a glass panel um, at the top that you could see out of. And that bothered me a lot. Um, now we're in an apartment, which is terrible. <laughs> um, but it, we had a black mold issue pop up at the house and our landlord was like, I can't let you day so we had to find somewhere real quick so that's where we ended up here but um I mentioned that it's an apartment uh we actually had I had another little incident about a month ago um I was isolated with COVID and I was you know confined to the bedroom you know don't go near her right (laughs) um and my daughter was here and again my husband was at work (laughs) and uh she said she came in and she said mommy somebody she's nine now and she was like, mommy, somebody's banging on the door. And I was like, not this again. Oh. <laughs> I was like, I don't like that. Uh, and she said, they're just saying hello. And I was like, that's weird because we know our next door neighbor. We don't really know anybody else. And why would they be at our front door? It was another situation like that. Um, didn't have a lot of time to think because we heard it's like a key fob 
mechanism. You put the key fob on and it unlocks it and you can open the door. We heard the key fob mechanism go off and, you know, she gasped. And I said, go through the bathroom to the closet and stay right there. I'll be right there. And I was on the phone with my husband and I was like, I think somebody just came in the apartment. I hung up on him. Like, oh, I can, I grabbed you, the gun from the drawer. Can you imagine <laughs> being him and hearing that? Come on. Yeah. Never mind. I, I, will, I know I couldn't because he had said he was too far to come home and check. And I was like, I was like, okay, well, what do I do? Like, I was asking him, like, should I call like the deputies? Can they even get in here? Because you have to have a key fob to get into the building, and that's another issue that we're having right now. But um, so we heard that go off. I I told him. I hung up the phone. I called nine one one. I got the gun and I went back through the bathroom this time into the closet that sits there with my daughter, and I just waited there and. Um, we think what happened was she accidentally left the keys in the mail room. And uh, I, I guess they were going by each door and checking to see which one it was. Who's that? Just so whoever found the keys. Hmm. I have no idea. It was not the office because they would have, you know, called or texted me and said, hey. But um, so the door actually opened. And um, but we were we went back into the closet this time because I had her, you know, and I wanted to be, you know, where she was. And um my husband ended up arriving anyway, and he was the only reason, the only reason that the deputies were able to get into the building because we don't live in the same county that he works in anymore. We live in a neighboring one mm-hmm. again, um, a lot closer, but they could not get in. So he had to let them in our apartment to go through and, you know, come in and check everything out. Sure. So we, it, I mean, it wasn't malicious this time, but again, I just fell right back into that the way that we had originally trained and the way that I had trained her when I told her go to the closet, she knew exactly what I meant, exactly where I meant. And she did it without question, which is what we had trained her to do, you know, in a situation where we would meet that because just because it's already happened doesn't mean obviously, you know, not going to happen again. Um, but you know, if I'd have been sitting out here, cause I usually keep my gun near me just out of habit. Now, um, if I'd have been sitting out here and somebody would have come in, you know, Round two, right. <laughs> just you know, but to be in an apartment building, you just you don't even think of it there. And not that I I'm always thinking about it in the back of my head, but just this was like the last place that I would have expected that, I guess. And I it only took me a couple of days to get over it this time, right. <laughs> uh, whereas it took me you know years before and literally almost destroyed our marriage, you know, because of my anxiety from it. Um. It's, it's, I have a friend who is, she was actually sexually assaulted um, when she was younger. And she told me everything that I would describe to her was the same feelings that she felt. She didn't feel safe where she was. She, you know, she wasn't able to find that, that peace in somewhere that should be peaceful. And, um, and I was like, cause I said that, I said, no, that's, that's, you know, what I went through is nothing like what you went through. She goes, you're having the same feelings that I had different reasons but you're having the same feelings that I had. So it's, it's about losing that safe place. And, you know, again, now I feel it here, but I think it's, I've come to more of a piece about it's, you're never really safe, you know, and that's actually what my husband could not understand because he's like, I do this every day. And I'm like, don't understand. I don't, Mm. I'm not a cop. I was a medic at best. I was seen, seen safe. You know, I have to have that's the number one rule of EMS. The police have to make sure that it is safe 
for me to come into a situation. That's where I am. So I'm not on the same level as you. And like, I understand now, you know, his, the way that, you know, his mind works on a daily basis as far as that feeling. And I think I'm, I'm coming more into it now, you know, even it's been, it was 2015. So 16, 15, 20, I use my fingers, seven years. And I'm still, you know, I'm still shaking by this. We had a, a good friend of mine, John Hintz, who, who was a peer counselor and now does um, work sort of in that general field. And, you know, he, he went through PTS. He was in two, aside from all the stuff you see as a cop to begin with, you know, all the death yeah. notifications and, you know, ki- dead kids in cars and the whole nine yards, you know, having to yeah. having to get to two different shootings. And he said something interesting to me, which is that there's, we, we know all the signs of PTS and they're, they're all, you know, there's no nothing new under the sun as far as that goes. So, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think it matters too much what it's from. I think very frequently the symptoms are very, very similar. Um, yeah. You know, I, I was dealing with hypervigilance for a long time where I would triple yeah. check, you know, stuff and be looking around in places where, the, you know, it was, was unreasonable amount of, of vigilance. Um, yeah. But uh, and I'm, I'm glad your marriage made it and I'm glad that you guys are kind of, you know, getting figuring each other out because that's that's very difficult. And the other um, casualty frequently of an event like this can be a marriage or a relationship um, because mm-hmm. it, it's just uh, it's it's an event that no one expects to have happen. And then it does. And then, you know, you your needs are ra- now radically different than they were before this thing happened. The things, the sense of security that you're d- desiring, um, you know, the, the, the level of uh, I don't, I don't say attention. There's another word. I can't think of the word I'm looking for. Just the level of um, the amount of time you want to spend with somebody. Like all, all, all the sort of stuff yeah. is isn't is in flux, and frequently the the marriage won't 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 make it through something like this. So, was there anything else you wanted to talk about that I haven't asked you already? Uh, yeah, actually. Um, so afterwards, uh, my sister-in-law she had she showed me this post from the Well-Earned Woman. I don't know if I can plug Carrie Lightfoot, but I will take any opportunity ever to plug Carrie Lightfoot because sure. I love her um, and I love what she's doing for the you know women in the community. She had posted about you know my incident on her page, and um, so I reached out to her and I said, "Hey, um, I'm reading through your website. I love what I'm seeing. Like, how can I get involved? How can I, how can I start spreading the word? Because the main thing that everyone was saying to me was, I don't think I could do that, hmm. and." Um, and I wanted to be able to tell them, yes, you can. Um, you know, I did. You can. It just takes a little bit of training and, the, and knowledge in your corner, you know, um, because I've always been a big proponent, even when I was in EMS and dispatch, you know, training. Once I got into those professions, I realized that when something, you know, when when it's just chaos and everyone is flailing in the water. What keeps you calm is your training because mm-hmm. you've trained for this. And that's why training is so important in anything you do. Um, and really, you know, they say practice like you play. And if you don't give it your hundred percent while you're training, you know, your training isn't going to be a solid and, you know, you may slip up. And when it comes time to, you know, when it counts, you know, as a CPR instructor, I was an ACLS and PALS instructor. And that was one thing that I try to tell everybody that I taught was, you have to pay attention. You have to treat this like it's important because it is. Because when when you get panicked and you never know when you're going to panic, as you know, as a as a law enforcement officer, you know, you never know the one situation you've gone to a hundred times. It's going to make you really panic that one time, and your training needs to be strong. And um, so 
I, in dealing with Carrie back and forth, I ended up um, being able to attend one of her courses to do the NRA fire instructors. Um, so I am a basic pistol instructor as well as a personal protection of the home instructor. Um, I've taught several women uh, in my family, you know, more, the, the more, you know, that's the main thing because everyone's always afraid or, you know, or we have a gun in the house, don't know how to use it just like me growing up. But the more, you know, about how it works and the mechanism. And like you said, you know, being able to put your hands on it and, you know, being able to, you know, dry fire and do those things and train on the range. Those things are going to be what carries you through, you know, God forbid something happens, at least you're prepared, you know, and you have that, you know that you're you're going to come through this kind of a feel. You said something earlier about when you told your daughter to go to the closet and she knew what to do and she did it without hesitation, without questioning you. You know, the, the three pillars of active self-protection, ASP, is attitude, skills, and plan. Uh, you have to have the right attitude. You have to have the skills, ergo the training you were discussing. And to train mm-hmm. well, to train properly, not to train in some, you know, crazy yeah. far out thing that's not going to do you any good, but something reasonable and, and repeatable. And a plan. And it sounds like you had all three of those things, even for the first incident, you had some idea of what you would do if this this thing happened. Um, Right. Unfortunately, uh, he didn't learn from the first round, so he needed another one. Uh, Unfortunately, (laughs) he he decided he chose his own fate. Like we say on the channel, the bad guy gets a vote, you know, and how these things play (laughs) out. And he he voted to get shot twice. So uh, I want to thank you so much for coming on and telling the story. I know it can't be easy. I think you're very brave, and I commend you for that. Um, Did you want to plug Well Armed Woman one more time? I love them so much. I highly recommend checking them out. The holsters that she makes for women specifically that fit your curves are just out of this world. And everyone that I have recommended get one that has has said the same thing and that's it's so much more comfortable it fits right on the body it doesn't stick way out to the side like it's fantastic and she's got not only that but she's got resources available she's got questions she does reviews of guns of holsters of carried you know uh, concealed carry purses all those things so she's definitely worth checking out well i want to thank you so much for being here Thank you for having me. Alrighty, folks. That is the end of our main interview. You know what time it is now. It's time for the Gutowski Files featuring Stephen Gutowski. He is the founder of TheReload.com and the host of the Weekly Reload podcast. And I highly recommend you go over to TheReload.com and consider getting a membership. That's how he uh, how he pays his bills and continues to get good reporting on the Second Amendment out to you fine people. Stephen, how are you, sir? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm, I'm doing okay. Um Another another uh, active self protection podcast in the can. We're we're just uh, chugging right along here, and uh, yeah. as I record this, I'm getting ready to move. So I'm trying to get a couple episodes ahead so I can move, and the good people still have this wonderful content to uh, to listen to. And I appreciate you coming on uh, a little early and often to help me get that done. Absolutely, we got to keep uh, keep growing the podcast. It's doing really good so far from everything I hear. It's doing remarkably well. So, and I think I, I think I sent you a screenshot of a review. And the person went out of their way to say, hey, I really like the 2A uh, segment at the end. And I hear that a lot word of mouth is that people really like this part of the show. I assume that's because you're on it, not me. I don't know. I can't account for it. But people do. Well, it's, it's my favorite part of the show, too. So. <laughs> well, you know, we get analytics. And it, it shows us how long people generally listen. And people listen to, you know, 90, 95% of the show 
which means they're well That's into great. our segment. You know, uh, by the time by the time they have to to turn it off, and I think most a lot of people listen to the whole thing, which is really cool. It's gratifying. You know, you Absolutely. put your heart and soul into something. So this yeah, week, and if people like it, they should leave more reviews. It abs- helps uh, helps it grow. Oh, it really does, man. The the, the how the algorithm works with Apple and Spotify. Um, if you leave a, a five star review or a five star rating and a review, it, it does it does help us out tremendously. So consider doing that. So this week we are talking about um, as we record this, the confirmation hearings are ongoing for Judge Kentaji Brown Jackson. She is the nominee of the Biden administration for the Supreme Court uh, vacancy that's come up, and she stated in her confirmation hearing, and I think it was. Uh, Senator Grassley that asked a question, the only Second Amendment question we've heard so far up until this recording, and she said she will abide by precedent as it relates to the Second Amendment. Um, you know, which you know, you could look at it two ways. She could be genuine in that, and that's that's her whole statement, or you could look at it as a duck or a dodge. Um, NRA is you know quarreling with that statement, saying she hasn't really stated her view specifically enough regarding you know what the Second Amendment means to individuals. So, Stephen, talk to us about this. Yeah, so she was asked specifically by Grassley, uh, quote, do you believe the individual right to keep and bear arms is a fundamental right? And she responded, Senator, the Supreme Court has established that the individual right to keep and bear arms is a fundamental right. <clears throat> now, certainly that sounds uh, on its face like like uh, good news for gun rights advocates. Sure. Uh, but obviously the contention here The problem, the reason that you're seeing uh, gun rights advocates unmoved by this gun rights groups like the NRA unmoved by this and gun control groups unconcerned about it uh, is because essentially she's saying that she didn't really answer the question directly in terms of what she personally believes, which to be fair to her is pretty much how all of these justices answer all of the questions at these hearings now. Uh, ever since Ginsburg started doing that uh, a while, a long time back. And so they they kind of go out of their way to try and not give their personal view on contentious issues like uh, the Second Amendment and how it should be interpreted. So instead, she's saying, I recognize that this is what the precedent is uh, that the Supreme Court has made and that lower courts have to abide by. Like she said something very similar. I think we talked about this uh, last time. She said something very similar during her confirmation hearing. Um, to the appeals court on the DC circuit where, you know, she recognized that Heller uh, was th- this landmark second amendment case was binding precedent for her when she was making decisions on that court as a lower court judge. But obviously when you get to the Supreme court, things are a little bit different. You're not, you're not bound by precedent in the same way. You know, yes, you're still supposed to have deference towards previous cases that the court has decided, but obviously the Supreme Court can uh, change those precedents itself. If and sometimes, it wants to. sometimes should. Sure. Certainly. I mean, obviously the Supreme Court is not always right. We've some of the worst uh, parts of American history were affirmed by the Supreme Court, you know, uh, uh, segregation, uh, <laughs> uh, Japanese internment, you know, so obviously there needs, there needs to be space to overturn um previous rulings and that's kind of what the judicial fight is always about right Right. is that uh liberals want to move the court in one direction and conservatives want to move it in in the other so uh, that's where you know you hear her say something like this and it might sound on its face like a a straightforward um commitment to uh, abiding by this second amendment protections that have been established uh 
but you know, that's not exactly what she's saying. And that's why you get a lot of people who don't trust her. I mean, you've also seen liberal justices or justices, uh, you know, nominated by the Democrats in the past say similar things. So, Sonia Sotomayor, right? She made a, a similar commitment uh, during her confirmation hearing. She said, quote, I understand the individual right fully that the Supreme Court recognized in Heller. Uh, but then when she was on the actual Supreme Court uh, and McDonald came up, which is the other landmark case, which incorporated Heller's individual right to the states, because Heller was about D.C., and mm-hmm. uh, D.C. is technically ruled over by the federal government. Uh, and so in order for that ruling to apply to the rest of the country, uh, it had to be uh, incorporated through the 14th Amendment. I, I hope I'm not getting too no, no. technical with this stuff. I'm but, following you. Uh, 2010's McDonald is how the Supreme Court did that. There's a, a handgun ban in Chicago, similar to the one in D.C., uh, that Heller struck down. And so they, the Supreme Court went and incorporated that ruling to the states. Uh, so that it's, you know, there's a very similar process. They've done this for most of the Bill of Rights, where, you know, technically the federal constitution uh, for a long time was viewed as only re- restraining the federal government. But that changed, uh, you know, uh, quite a while back. And now uh, we, we apply things like the First Amendment, Second Amendment, Fourth Amendment, uh, protections to the states as well, to, at least to some degree, and uh, that's what they were doing in this in this case of McDonald. And so, Sotomayor was, was heard that case, and after saying in her confirmation that she understand the individual right uh, that the Supreme Court recognizes in Heller, um, and and that you know it, it was uh, a, a valuable thing to many Americans. She then signed on to uh, the dissenting opinion in McDonald that concluded, quote, in sum, the founders did not write the Second Amendment in order to protect a private right of armed self-defense. So kind of the exact opposite of what she had said. Like she recognized the ruling in Heller, uh, but uh, when she was actually on the court, her beauty, you know, and able to fully express her uh, views on the matter, she took the opposite track of what the uh, of what was decided in Heller. So, you know, I, that's I, why um, there's concern in my in my perfect world. All Supreme Court nominees would answer based on what the Constitution says and what what is reasonable, and not on their personal opinion. I don't feel like judges' personal opinions should come into their rulings in in most cases. That's just my my personal opinion. Uh, sure. I'm a big guy. And that's big... what she said to be yeah. fair to her. Yeah. Um, and so that's I... what kind of, that's what they kind of all say, yeah. to be honest with you, uh, in these hearings, that's what they'll say that their personal opinions don't, uh, aren't what the, they use to decide, you know, cases. If only that were true. So you, so you said, uh, uh, we talked a bit earlier about how the NRA has made a statement about this. Do you want to talk to us about what they had to say, um, in regards to her answer and how they're not satisfied with it? Yeah, uh, you have a quote from that. Now, this is from uh, when her nomination was announced, but it's a, uh, they said, quote, Judge uh, Kintaji Brown-Jackson has never affirmed that the Second Amendment protects the individual fundamental right of all Americans to keep and bear arms for the defense of themselves or others. And so, yeah, and I actually asked them about this uh, at the time because, you know, obviously she has said, 
that it, the Supreme Court recognizes this right. Uh, but she, uh, their point here is, again, that she, what she said is that the Supreme Court recognizes this right or established this, not that she personally would uh, sign on to the same opinion in a future case. You know what I mean? Like that's, that's the difference that they're uh, hinging their take on. Um, of course, we've talked about in the past, like, uh, there is some reason to think maybe Brown would be uh, Brown Jackson would be a little bit different from the other justices because she has something of a libertarian streak in some of the things she had done, and mm-hmm. she was a public defender. And some public defenders, at least, have a a dim view on uh, you know gun, at the very least uh, strict gun carry uh, re- regulations like they or, have or, in New York or, or, or how the laws applied depending on yeah certain factors. Right. So you know. Uh, it's not impossible that she could uh, break with liberal justices on some two A cases. You know, I think the upside that you're looking at with her is is like uh, perhaps a left leaning version of, of Gorsuch because Gorsuch will sometimes break with what uh, you know your your traditional conservative uh, jurisprudence might be on a case and get more a little more libertarian, hmm. uh, a little more uh, you know uh, skeptical of government power in some areas that conservatives uh, might disagree on uh, and so may- maybe she ends up like that it's hard to know until she gets on the court uh, but to be fair like the gun groups are all very clear on what side of uh, brown jackson support they fall on and yep it's also pretty good shorthand just to uh, rely on that as well and you know joe biden's own history uh, of being a very strong an aggressive gun rights or sorry, gun control uh, advocate uh, is, is also something to consider for sure. Yeah. I, I, I just don't imagine, um, you know, I'm generalizing here. I'm speculating here, but I, I don't imagine that whoever vetted her for this position didn't talk to her about uh, her views on the second amendment. And that that wasn't a consideration before he nominated her, but that again is speculation. So I won't ask you to comment on my speculation since you are an actual reporter and I am not. Folks, if you are lamenting the lack of down-the-middle, sane, sober reporting on the Second Amendment, if you want to make sure we, we keep into perpetuity a source, a, a news source you can go to and get facts, straight facts, straight reporting, and not speculation, and not a lot of opinion, do me a favor, go over to thereload.com and carefully consider getting a membership. Uh, Stephen is doing the Lord's work over there and needs your support to keep doing it. Um, him and Jake Fogelman are, are writing articles I'm not seeing anywhere else. I'm just not seeing this stuff reported. I'm seeing stories I don't see anywhere else. So if you're interested in 2A stuff, that's the place to go for news. So please go over there and get a membership. And Stephen, sir, God willing, I will see you next week. Absolutely. Absolutely.